0: This is Dan from Burlington, Vermont, and I'm tuned in to the new TNN. Showtime, a-holes. Welcome to the new TNN Podcast. This is Junkman. I am Johnny C, as is to be expected, and welcome to a very special episode of Junkman, as we're here to talk about the brand spankin' new film from the Marvel Cinematic Universe known only as Guardians of the Galaxy. Volume 3. Now, Junk Man, of course, ladies and gentlemen, is the show here on the new TNN podcast feed where we take a look at movies that are not necessarily well received by the world. We watch them and we decide is it junk or is it something else? I realize right off the top that, you know, that doesn't necessarily apply to this because the critical consensus is of a positive nature here for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. But as we recently did Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mania, and we sort of took the MCU to task. And when you combine that with the fact that, you know, over the past couple years over on the North South Connection Podcast Network, which I'm sure a lot of you listened to and found me there, and I appreciate you listening to everything there and everything here. Uh, I love those folks and still appear there. Um, all I'm trying to say is I, I, I've done a lot of MCU release films for them starting with uh, Multiverse of Madness, Good Love and Thunder, Wakanda Forever, etc., etc. So I've sort of been doing reviews of MCU films as they release uh, in real time, and I kind of want to keep that going um, because I want to sort of keep a a record uh, of how I feel about these things when I see them immediately, okay? So I'm going to tell you this right from the get-go. I don't really know, a couple of things. One, I don't really know any way I can do this without talking about spoilers. So, spoiler warning, just starting right now, I mean, I could literally say anything that's going to spoil this film for you if you haven't seen it. And I do recommend you go see it and make your own judgment, uh, and then come back here, okay? Number two, uh, I didn't really like to give a ton of behind-the-scenes information because it's kind of embarrassing, but, you know, I, I didn't go see this film with the impression that I was going to do an episode on it and I didn't take notes I don't really take notes when I see movies in the theater period and I don't go see them multiple times because it's usually just not something I can work into my schedule because um, I'm super busy I, side note I kind of hate when people say that they were they don't have enough time to do X you know if I'm talking to somebody I'm like oh man did you uh, see uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 just as an example like man I don't have time to go to the movies and I'm like oh okay and I see you in a couple of weeks, and I'm like, hey, how's it going? Oh, you know, things are going well. Uh, oh, hey, uh, have you seen uh, such and such? Or uh, did you know that the uh, New York Rangers are winning the Stanley Cup? And it's like, uh, well, uh, no, I didn't know that. Wait a minute, you had time to watch the Stanley Cup play? I thought you didn't have time for such things. So I don't like to say I don't have time. But going to the movie for me, anyway, is a, uh, it's a time. It's a time thing. You know, most of the time when I watch shows for Junkman, I watch them over the course of like a week in 10 minute intervals on my phone. So I don't know, peek behind the curtain there. But I do want to talk about this because I think it warrants discussion. Uh, Why, though? Why does it warrant such a discussion? Well, I'll tell you. One of the podcasts that I listen to in my personal time, i.e. at work when I'm doing work, is a wonderful show that I want to, I'm not affiliated with this show. They're not affiliated with me. They don't endorse my show. They don't anything like that. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, I've been listening to a show called We Hate Movies since, I don't know, 2011, 12. I mean, a long fucking time. And uh, I I love that show. One of the they recently covered. They do like a they did a Patreon. It's a bad movie podcast. Okay, so i'm I, not only am I aping their format. Okay, I sort of I sort of enjoy them quite a bit and what have you. My point is is that they did an episode on Guardians of the Galaxy, but it was under their We Love Movies banner, which is a Patreon exclusive, which you should subscribe to. But again, I'm not affiliated. I'm just saying. no I'm just saying. Anywho, they they were gushing over Guardians of the Galaxy One, and I was like, huh. God, you know, perfect timing for them because it came out like three days before Volume 3 released. But I was like, now nah, I kind of want to re-watch Guardians of the Galaxy. So I did. And then I rewatched Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And I was like, there's no way I'm escaping going to see Volume 3 this weekend. It has to happen. So... I'm very up to snuff on my Guardians of the Galaxy having recently just watched Volumes 1 and 2 and having seen Infinity War and Endgame probably more than most Marvel films because to me they're infinitely rewatchable, no pun intended, because they are culminations. It's sort of like watching a WrestleMania over and over again. I'm not watching the weekly TV over and over again, but I am watching a WrestleMania. And I hope that analogy, and I'm not sure if it's analogy because I don't remember how I started that sentence, I hope that makes sense. So that encouraged me to want to see Volume 3. It wasn't reviews, it wasn't anything like that. It was just, you know what? I want to see how this bad boy ends. And I learned, or should I say I relearned a lot about the Guardians of the Galaxy trilogy by rewatching films 1 and 2. You know, those films to me, while they are a part of the MCU, they really are kind of standalone things. And and they really are owned by James Gunn, the writer-director of those films. But we'll get into all that. We'll get into all that. So, that being said, that's sort of why we're taking this Volume 3 journey. Now, as we usually do on Junkman, let's talk about who's in this bad boy. Of course, written and directed by James Gunn, who you might know from such things as being the architect of the modern DC universe that has led to launch, but also the director of such films as, oh, I don't know, I don't know, he wrote Tromeo and Juliet... uh, he directed Slither, he directed, obviously, uh, Guardians, Guardians 2, Guardians 3, The Suicide Squad, and oh, what the fuck else. He did super, that Rain Wilson movie. That was pretty funny. So, you know, James Gunn. I think, we, uh, think we're familiar with his work. The film stars, of course, Chris Pratt as Star-Lord. A character that I came to this movie pretty tired of. Also starring Zoe Saldana as Gamora, version 2. Of course Gamora died in Avengers Infinity War came to Avengers Endgame from the past and now lives in the present. <laughs> oh that's not confusing at all. My boy Dave Bautista as Drax the Destroyer. I love Dave. Dave makes me so happy. I'm so happy Dave got this role. I really am. I love how Dave is really so uh, so much fun to see in a film and I love how Dave takes roles that aren't Dave-like and Dave is such a more interesting performer than Dwayne really makes me smile Karen Gillan as Nebula wow I love me some Karen Gillan anyway Palm Clementif as Mantis a character I quite enjoyed spoiler alert but we'll talk about that we're going to go through all the characters as part of the analysis of the film. Featuring Vin Diesel as Groot. All right. And Bradley Cooper as Rocket Raccoon. Yay. And I, I, like, I like Bradley Cooper. I like Bradley Cooper a lot. I was kind of bummed when Bradley Cooper was first cast as Rocket Raccoon because I was like, oh, Bradley Cooper won't appear on screen in the MCU. And I think Bradley Cooper could easily play a superhero. But... Uh, He's the rocket we got, and he's the rocket that I've come to enjoy. Sean Gunn as Kraglin. Nepotism, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You know, I, I, we'll talk about Kraglin. It's fine. I, I didn't really mean that nepotism thing. Oh, God. This is the moment I've been dreading. Not so much dreading, but I probably should have. This is why you uh, do these things. That's why you prepare for podcasts, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, God. Chukawudi Iwuji I'm sorry, I really am, I, I apologize as the High Evolutionary uh, I like this gentleman I first met him in a Peacemaker, I'm not going to lie and here he is as the High Evolutionary which we will talk about Will Poulter as Adam Warlock maybe maybe one spice too many, well we'll talk about Adam Warlock Elizabeth Debicki as Aisha the leader of the Sovereign. Hey, coming back from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Nice to see you. Maria Bekalov as the voice of Cosmo, the space dog. Sylvester Stallone as Stakar. Hello. Uh, 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 Sylvester Stallone here. uh God be in the, the, the Marvel things because uh, you know, I'm kind of a hero. One thing I love is that Sylvester Stallone is in Guardians, Volume 2, and, of course, Michael Rooker is as Yondu. And I love them as a pair from the film Cliffhanger, which I heard was getting rebooted. And if Michael Rooker's not in it, I'm not seeing it. Additionally, we've also got Linda Cardellini as the voice of Lila. We'll talk about Nathan Fillion in a distracting cameo. Daniela Melacore as Ura from uh, The Suicide Squad, playing the Rat Catcher, Volume 2, as well. Uh, we've got Lex Luthor himself, Michael Rosenbaum as Martinex. Okay, whatever. Jennifer Holland's here. That's James Gunn's wife. Nepotism again. I'm kidding. I really don't care. I I really don't care. Uh, there's not, not a goddamn thing wrong with Jennifer Holland. And am I forgetting anyone? Oh yes, I am. Making his third. No, one, two, three, four. No, one, two, three. For fifth, making his fifth canonical physical appearance in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and his one fourth vocal appearance, Seth Green returns as Howard the Duck. Woo! With a fucking redesign. I, I don't have a plan to talk about Howard the Duck. So I'm to talk about him right now. He appears in a poker game that takes place in nowhere. Nice redesign on Howard the Duck here, man. Can we please, please get some Howard the Duck content in the MCU, okay? Like, I, I got, I didn't dislike She-Hulk, attorney at law, okay? I did not dislike She-Hulk, attorney at law. However, the populace may not have been ready to accept a show like She-Hulk, attorney at law, with a character like She-Hulk. Now, that doesn't mean that's right. I think a lot of people see a character like She-Hulk, and they're like, oh, cool, a super, a, you know, a Hulk-type character. And they didn't expect She-Hulk to be a workplace comedy or like, as much of a comedy as it was, which is silly because you've obviously never read She-Hulk. But that being said, if you really have an itch you need to scratch of doing something redonkulous in the MCU on Disney+, Plus that people can consume just for mindless, and I don't mean mindless is a bad thing, entertainment, Howard the Duck is sitting right there! Lindsay Lohan is too old to play Beverly Switzer at this point. It's unfortunate, because I I think that would have been some dynamite casting. Like, maybe before it went off the rails. But we didn't have the MCU before it went off the rails. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? But I I just, I love Howard the Duck so goddamn much. Oh, well. Now, uh, I I have, you know, sort of been weary of spoilers. Obviously, the character list contains the spoilers, maybe here or there. What I want to do, or what I have planned out first, is to talk about this motion picture as a concept, and then we'll get into the characters, which should cover a lot of the plot beats as we go along the way, and then, you know, we'll have our full assessment of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Now, the first major thing I want to point out about this film of two that I have planned, is this a dark film? I'll be the first to admit that's a really loaded question, you know. Is it as dark as, say, Dark City? Okay, that's kind of a joke. It's, you know, because Dark City is very dark and hard to see. I, I remember the first time I ever heard the term dark used to describe a motion picture. It was Batman 1989. And, you know, I, I, of course, I'm like six years old. I didn't really know what it meant. And I still, to this day, have problems with people describing films as dark, you know, if, for example, someone that I know is a little uptight about thematic elements is like, is that a dark movie? Like somebody asked me, they had younger kids and they're like, uh, is Spider-Man No Way Home too dark? And I was like, I I don't know how to answer that question. Was it too, was it, first of all, was it dark? Well, I mean, no, I mean, spoiler alert for Spider-Man No Way Home. If for some crazy reason you haven't seen it. You know, I was like, people die in it. I was like, real humans die, not gleep-glop aliens. Real people die in it. But, but does that make something dark? I mean, real people die all the time. Like, right now, somebody just died. And and that's it's, it's sad to think about. But I didn't say that they died in some sort of tragic scenario. It was, you know, they were 99, and it was just time. Granted, Aunt May's fucking stabbed with a Green Goblin shenanigans, and that's pretty bleak and depressing. She dies in the arms of her nephew. But I don't necessarily think that makes something dark. But, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 has people die. It has animals die. But I think, more importantly, it does differentiate itself from the first two in a sense that as soon as we establish... That were kind of like the Guardians of the Galaxy are never really having fun in this movie. And that's okay. I actually think that's kind of a good thing. Sure, they laugh, they crack a joke here and there. But they're all, for the most part, at a level of frustration and dissatisfaction that makes the motion picture so much more interesting. There are some terrifying elements involving animal cruelty. Which uh, you know, I think might strike a nerve with viewers, um, and I hope it. You know, and I don't like a movie like that. It, I let me pause before I I start ranting and rambling. I've heard people, you know, I've heard reviewers talk about how oh, this movie's just you know it's awful, like the animal cruelty, and I'm like, so that makes a movie awful? And now, animal cruelty is awful, yes, but. You know, it's like there was a I read a review and you know, they said that the animal cruelty is like horrific and and you know, the, it makes the motion picture like bleak and you know, uh, not really something they want to watch and I get that, but then they were saying it makes the movie bad in a couple of words. And then it's like this person also gave like a five-star review to the film Parasite, which is a great film and absolutely worthy of praise. But you want to talk about human cruelty. I don't know, like, I just don't understand why that makes a reviewer say a film is bad. And I understand the fact that they might be saying that through the lens of the fact that this is supposed to be popcorn family friendly friendly affair, but it's, it's not. It doesn't have to be. So yeah, I would say the movie has a more bleak tone than the first two Guardians of the Galaxy films. I don't know if it's dark but it was certainly a welcome surprise. You know, the origin story of Rocket Raccoon is not a happy one, which is insane to say out loud when you're considering the fact that what makes this film so dark, to use the term from a film perspective, is that Rocket Raccoon, we finally learn his origin, and these... I I don't want to... Shut up, watch. God, I hate when I'm podcasting and my watch talks to me. Rocket Raccoon, it it found an article, though. Rocket Raccoon was never supposed to be a superhero from Polygon.com two days ago. The story of how Rocket Raccoon made it into the Guardians of the Galaxy is all about joking, experiments, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And it continues. I fucking hate Apple watches sometimes. I really do. But I don't cut anything out either. So these characters, the uh, you know, like the Lila and Floor and Teefs, you know, the, the animals that Rocket befriends as victims of the High Evolutionary that all eventually are horrendously killed by the High Evolutionary in all of their cinematic glory. It's, it's horrifying because you have these, I don't want to call them Disney-type creatures because there's, the word disney like makes people panic and fucking go into a rage which makes me laugh. So if you're one of those people, you're probably not listening to this show due to my crazy liberal views, but you know, it's just I would even though they have quote unquote horrendous body modifications and in t- floor, Jesus Christ, we got we're going to talk about floor in a little bit cuz floor really really struck me in all the ways that like yeah Eh, we'll talk about floor and when we get to it eventually, I guess. But their whimsicalness—they're whimsical, they're whimsical, animat- they're whimsical, anamorphic animals, okay? And they could almost be helping Cinderella get ready for the get the ball, or I don't know, helping Pocahontas, you know find guns to shoot the white men that are trying to steal our land, which I'm okay with. (laughs) You know, they could do all sorts of things. They they wouldn't be out of place in a Disney movie in a lot of ways. And here they are, fucking just sliced and cut to pieces and Frankenstein monstered. And they're, they're just shot and tossed away like garbage. And they have the most innocent worldview in these horrifying times. I am not going to sit here and dare compare that to something out of like Schindler's List or anything like that. But when I said just now, uh, keeping an optimistic worldview in horrendous circumstances, it reminds me of the Roberto Benigni film Life is Beautiful. It just from a from a, from a broad overall concept. Please understand that, okay. And so these, so when these animals die when these animals are executed, when they're thrown away like garbage simply because of what they are, not who they are, it is bleak, it is traumatic, and it makes the film all the more better because it feels so out of left field from what I would have expected from a film franchise that's 33 films or whatever deep at this point. These are all good things. And why does the movie do this? The movie is... Is a well, I wanted to talk about is the, this film a product in a way? It is a product, it's a product of a limited amount of creatives, namely James Gunn, and that is a good thing. I don't want to heap a shit ton of praise on this movie that isn't warranted, but I'm going to say this considering the fucking ridiculous product of films that we've been given by from the Marvel Cinematic Universe lately. This is Oscar-worthy compared to that, okay? Is this film Oscar-worthy in general? No. But what I'm saying is, is that this is such a hard pivot from the schlock that we've been handed. It can't help but stand out as tremendous. It is such... It feels like an actual fucking movie. It feels like just a movie. Now, sure, it's a third movie in a series. And and one of the things I've sort of realized watching all three Guardians of the Galaxy films in quick succession is that, yes, of course they take place in the MCU. Of course they do. They are MCU films. But really, even in their post-credit scenes, which is when most standalone films start to tie into a larger narrative, most of the Guardians of the Galaxy post-credit scenes even are sort of internally based. They set up further adventures of the Guardians of the Galaxy, not so much further examples of, the, of of you know a larger MCU story that's taking place, but further adventures of what these characters are going to do, and perhaps why this film makes no bones about standing alone on its own, away from the tone of the rest of the MCU. It carries the internal tone of the Guardians of the Galaxy films. One could argue that the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 success led to the modern Marvel product that we experience now, the sort of what feels like filmmaking by a committee, where the jokes are all the same and the tone is all the same. Sure, you might get a, a, you know a random outlier like Captain America... Uh, The Winter Soldier, that's a political thriller. You know, and there are other examples that I don't have written down in front of me. And, and, you know, I I don't mean to come across as a jaded MCU person, but I will say, post-Infinity War, the films have, or excuse me, post-Endgame, the films have never felt more like filmmaking by an assembly line. Even when it comes to uh, just the overall general lack of quote-unquote filmmaking that's involved. Tangibility. I mean, Ant-Man and the Wasp and Quantumania is just a fucking green screen. And and I'm not trying to take away from the artistic merits of visual artists because there's certainly merits to that. But it's just... I don't know. I know there's a lot of CG in this film, but there are tactile things that you can hold as well, and even if there are scenes that are just smothered in CGI, for some fucking reason, maybe it's the flair that James Gunn's bring to this thing, although I've never really felt of him as a, of a director with a lot of flair, you know, it, it, uh, it, I just... It just it stands out so much that this is clearly the vision of a select group of creative individuals, and that's really high praise considering the day and age we are of blockbuster filmmaking. And so kudos to this film for just being the vision of a fucking writer director. Um, again, it's 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 kind of there's a duality here. The movie's good. Like I think the movie's good. I think the movie to me excels in as a masterclass of m within the mcu subgenre sub subgenre you know there's a uh, superhero films the mcu is a subgenre of superhero films okay so within the subgenre of mcu f- superhero films this film stands out from the pack in many ways and aligns itself with those better films like captain america the winter soldier um other films that are escaping me at this time. I feel like it, there's so many that I I just lose sight because I I have myself have lived in a very avenger-centric world to where the films I've rewatched the most in MCU are just the Avengers films because I sort of was of the mindset again using the WrestleMania comparison, why would I watch you know, the random episode of Superstars or Mania leading up to. Actually, that's not a good example because I would watch all that shit leading up to. I was going to say WrestleMania 10 just because it's old and nostalgic and I haven't seen it a lot. But why would I bother watching the Rawls leading up to WrestleMania 39 when I could just watch WrestleMania 39? It's right there and readily available to me. That's my outlook as a wrestling fan. And, and so that's the comparison point that I'm using. Like, why would I just watch Ant Man and the Wasp when I could watch Avengers Endgame? It's not... I'm not saying it's a good thing or the right way to look at it. It's not. But I'm sharing this with you because I want to give you, uh, you know, the rationalization as to why, to this critic, this film is a master class of the MCU genre. Because it is the work of a small group of creatives, namely James Gunn. James Gunn, I'm walking around in circles. I fucking understand. I can hear myself talking. But it is what it is. Um, now... The Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 and Volume 2, you know, they do establish a comedic tone. There's sharp writing here. These characters are very well formed. What is so interesting about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 also is that we have spent time with all of the Guardians characters in this film, in one way or another, mostly. I think maybe Kraglin and Cosmo being the exceptions, because I don't think they're in Avengers Endgame and Infinity War in speaking roles, okay? Uh, Like, they don't get character development. Well, Kraglin's in Thor Love and Thunder. So here's my point. The Guardians of the Galaxy characters have also shown up under the leadership of other creatives within the MCU. That's very interesting as well. You know, we're going to get examples of this coming soon, this summer in The Flash. We have seen... Michael Keaton and Tim Burton's Batman on film twice. Now we're going to see Michael Keaton and Tim Burton's Batman a third time under the creative design of different writers, different directors, etc., etc. Will Michael Keaton's Tim Burton's Batman feel like the same character. Sure, he'll look like him. And I'm not, this is not about The Flash. I'm very excited for The Flash. I'm not throwing shade at it. I haven't seen it yet. Whatever. But we got that with The Guardians of the Galaxy. The Russo brothers and the writers of Avengers Infinity War and Endgame got a hold of these characters, as did Taika Waititi and Thor Love and Thunder. So James Gunn is not only returning to film the third film in his trilogy, he is reclaiming the characters from other creatives. And not only is he reclaiming them, ladies and gentlemen, what is most interesting is he reclaims them changed. They are different characters than when he left them as a creative. And it's truly fascinating. I read a little blurb where some someone asked James Gunn about uh, what happened to the Guardians, you know, away from his trilogy, and you know he gave a very diplomatic answer about the question like, "How would you have handled blah blah blah?" And he's like, "I don't." His diplomatic answer was like, "I don't know if I would have made all the same choices, but that's not for me to say." You know, like I said, very diplomatic, PC style answer there. Namely, Gamora the Great is dead. You know, when we left uh, Star-Lord and Gamora at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, it's interesting because they're not really a couple. They're so close to being a couple. You know, they're pretty much, it's pretty much like all bets are off now. Like, yeah, they're going to do it. But when we meet them in Avengers Infinity War, they're full bore like, I love you, 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 I love you. Isn't that a song? It doesn't matter. Um, which is fine. Like, I think they were going that way anyway. But then, of course, Gamora dies at the hands of Thanos. Thanos. And, and you know, there's there's all sorts of things that happen. Okay? Uh, I won't say that the Guardians of the Galaxy are mischaracterized in the films that they're away from Gunn. I would argue, I wonder... I would love to know if Gunn even came in to give some pointers, like, in the uh, in the, uh, script writing process. I would be curious because... You don't get that a whole hell of a lot where there's a certain vision attached to the characters. Different directors and different writers come and go a lot. I mean, Mark Webb has stuck around. Not Mark Webb, Jesus Christ. That's um, that's the Amazing Spider-Man one and two director. Uh, Tom Watts is that his name that directed? John Watts that directed all three Marvel Spider-Man, Spider-Man films. Like he and Peyton Reed has directed all three Ant-Man films, but they're not. Writing the films as well, they're directing, so they share like a a certain camera perspective. They share now the camera perspective is a fucking stupid way to say it. They share a certain look and feel, but James Gunn is also penning these characters as well as directing. So having to reclaim them is so interesting, and he has to reclaim them from spots where they were left, you know, uh, by other writers and directors, and it's just a fascinating fucking thing. You know, it's like if Tim Burton had come back to direct Batman Forever after Batman appeared in a team-up with Superman and, you know, was cracking jokes and shit, and now Tim's got to bring him back and rein him in. You know, he's got to take control back of the character. And, uh, I don't know, I just, I thought that was really an interesting thing to bring up because it's not something that you probably... not, I don't mean to say it's not probably something you think about to insult your intelligence. I'm just saying that, you know, I will freely admit that I'm kind of a nerd and, and not a nerd, but I'm very interested in the, uh, the art behind everything. And, and it just, it may, you know, I was thinking about that and it's fascinating. It really fucking is. And now, with with all that said, sort of about the the movie in general, and sort of the concepts in play here with the film, I want to dive a little bit more into the individual characters that are at play here. You know, it's kind of what we all come to see. And this will, talking about the character beats, their progression, how it made me feel, my overall thoughts about that, will lead us into sort of a way to discuss the actual events of the film without having to go through a beat-by-beat plot synopsis. And, you know, I think that'll... That'll act as sort of the the main thrust of the review, even though we're pretty far into this thing already. So, the first two characters that we want to talk about are Star Lord and Gamora the Great. So, Star Lord, I I can see Star Lord as sort of being a coin flip character. You love him or you don't love him. But I, I gotta tell you, I'm a little in the middle after seeing Volume Three, and let me explain. So. I think like a lot of people, after Guardians of the Galaxy first came out, I was a big Star-Lord fan. It was so fun to see Chris Pratt get this big role and really shine through and charm. Uh, the the guy's extremely charming. I, I realize at this point the Chris Pratt brand has sort of become annoying, but that really shouldn't have anything to do with anything. So I want to exclude that con- from the conversation and just talk about Star-Lord the character. So at the end of Volume 1, I'm a big fan. Volume 2, Star-Lord, I'm a little less... See, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but I was not... I'm not a massive fan of Star-Lord as the son of Ego, the living planet. And I don't have to be. It's not their job to make me, you know, love their creative choices. It's, you know, it's their job to make me understand their creative choices and, and to, you know, to have the narrative validated by the events that they choose to show. But all that being said, I, I much prefer the comics origin of Star-Lord, which is, which is very similar. And like I said, I don't want to dive too much into it, but to make a very long story short, uh, instead of having to be delivered to Ego the Living Planet, the reason that Star-Lord was abducted as a child was that so he could return to the planet of his home father, uh, Spartax. Uh, where his father is Jason, or Jason, Jason of Spartax. He's the ruler of the planet Spartax. And the reason that Peter Quill is known as Star Lord is because he is the prince of planet Spartax. And the title that he carries on that planet is that of Star Lord of Spartax. And instead of, you know, sort of running around the galaxy. Being an a-hole because he was raised by the Ravagers, he's sort of running around the galaxy being an a-hole as a way to rebel against his dad who's like a king. He's a prince that doesn't want to be a prince, basically. And it's, it may not be as interesting. I can cop to that. But I feel like it makes, a, uh, it makes him a more important piece of the Marvel cosmic galaxy because he is sort of royal space royalty. But that's aside from the point. Now, I do think Peter Quill, Star-Lord becomes a bit more interesting when he's in Avengers Infinity War. You know, some people like to, I don't know if it's poke fun or get all up in arms about how, you know, it's Star-Lord's fault, basically, that Thanos gets the last Infinity Stone and, you know, is able to do the snap. But I kind of like that. I like that real human emotion tears apart the perfect plan that is designed for the greater good, because isn't that sort of reality? Regardless of how much, and and I do believe that Star-Lord believes in the greater good. Of course, he doesn't want Thanos to succeed. But but upon learning that Thanos has killed the woman he loves, he can't act in the greater good. He can only act in the now. It's a very human response. And I like that Star-Lord um you know made that choice it's a kind of a bummer that no film really deals with the ramifications of him doing that he doesn't seem to carry the weight of i mean he might be cuz when we meet him in volume 3 he's a he's a fall down drunk he's clearly depressed about Gamora but they never really throw in that star lord's kind of bummed about um what he was responsible for. I think when they're talk, when he's talking in the elevator, he or when he's there are a couple times in Volume Three where Star Lord sort of runs us through the entire plot of the MCU from the Guardians of the Galaxy point of view. I think he does mention that he got really bad and and let Thanos win or something. I can't remember what it was. I have to see that's a bummer about only seeing it once, but I think he does at least mention it. If he doesn't, I'm wrong. You can punch me in the face. That's fine. But in volume three no, he's a drunk who's on the end of his rope, and he's called to action when Rocket is on the verge of death. And I like that he is called to action to save, at this point in his life, what is the only semblance of family that he's ever, I don't want to say he's ever had, because he was a part of the Ravagers, but it's, it's all he's got left. You know, his, his his father is dead, his mother is dead, his surrogate father is dead. And the, the Guardians is really all he has. Or Nebula, excuse me, Gamora. Gamora Volume 1 is dead. So all we really have is what's left of the Guardians of the Galaxy. So it makes total sense. It makes total sense that he would be called into action by this. And it also makes sense that, much like when he was confronted with Thanos, Star-Lord makes a lot of decisions in this film that are sort of, pardon the expression, snap-related. we got to save Rocket. That's all there is to it. What's it going to take? What's it going to take? What's it going to take? He doesn't... He he's not the type of hero where a barrier is encountered and he's like, "Oh boy, yeah, this is a bad idea." Like it it's never a bad idea. I mean, it might be a bad idea, but he never sees it as a bad idea. He's completely on board regardless because he's got to do what he's got to do. Of course, when he's reunited with Gamora, he sort of becomes a little pathetic, but it makes complete sense. And this is where we kind of are going to weave in the discussion of Gamora uh, version 2 as well so we've learned that since we last saw this version of Gamora she has become a pretty solid member in the foundation of the Ravagers led by Sylvester Stallone's Sakaar and uh, Lex Luthor's Crystal Face guy, whose name I can't remember, uh, no Michelle Yo, Ving Rhames or Miley Cyrus here uh, I think Miley Cyrus's robot is uh, Terra Strong from Loki, it, it, that's fine I don't have a problem, it's just that's only something that real nerds care about uh, and, and that's totally fine. Um, in this Gamora-Star-Lord relationship in Volume 3, I think the movie does a pretty good job of allowing us to side with both of them. Now, what does that mean? I, I think is the audience absolutely understands and empathizes with where Star-Lord is coming from. He lost Gamora. She's gone. But also, she's right here in front of me. But, of course, we're not involved in the story as Star-Lord, we, we empathize with him, but we see the logic in Gamora's side. Dude, I'm not her. I'm sorry. It's a little creepy. And we understand Gamora's point of view. Now, we know it's not creepy, creepy, like stalker creepy, but it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's just the reality of the situation. It's very human. Like, I, like, this can't happen in our reality, but I kind of get how it could happen. Like, people break up. They don't die and and come back from the past. It's a little silly, but I totally get it. Um, I really do. I like Star Lord's relationship with Nebula. We're gonna talk about that, but it it kind of feels like uh, a sister-in-law might be kind of a weird way to say it, because that's what you know. To say in a little more real terms, but it's definitely like a brother-sister type thing because they both have this shared trauma of Gamora dying. And Nebula gets it like, come here, you big lug, you fucking idiot. And she you know, she's carrying him around when he's drunk. Like they both are dealing with the pain of losing the same person that they love, and it makes sense. Um you know this entire the like I said, the entire journey of Star Lord is to hold on to to what he has and what he knows. And I think he does a good job of interacting with all the different Guardians characters throughout the movie. He's their leader. He's someone they believe in. I don't know if he's the one that gives the order to don their sweet Guardians of the Galaxy suits, but I will say, I love that they finally had some new TNN patented brand synergy! I don't even like I have no emotional attachment to these suits, but I was kind of like, oh, look, we're a superhero team now. Like it was fun. It was a nice little spice that was added in to the to the mix. And I appreciated it. Also, since I was talking about Star Lord and Nebula, we should probably mention a moment that's gotten a lot of press. And it's a bummer that it's gotten so much press because it makes it out to be a bigger deal than it really is. But this film does include the first utterance of the word fuck in an MCU movie. Now, is that important? No, no, I don't think it is. And it, it's silly to make a big deal out of it. Here's the reason I say that. I feel like like if, if you're making a big deal out of it, to me that makes it sound like it shouldn't be there or it's out of place or it's like inappropriate. I don't believe the word fuck is really inappropriate, unless you, of course, say it to a two year old or something like that. But, you know, for them to be like, oh, they said fuck, and it was so. No, because here's why. It's so fucking organic. You know, you've seen the movie. They're on counter earth, and <laughs> Nebula's just trying to open the car door. What next? Open the fucking door! Like, it's totally. If I mean, it works so well. It's actually perfect. It's perfect that it's so. Who cares? It's like uh, you know the episode of South Park where they're de- desperately trying to watch NYPD Blue because they're going to say the word shit, and then they keep waiting for it. And in the very last scene, the dude's like, "Hey Sipwood, you got some shit on your upper lip." Like it's it's like who cares? It's just how people talk, you know. It's just so open the fucking door. There's not some big moment where the music stops and Star Lord's like, "I shall say fuck." It's it's very funny. Like I knew going into this that. Someone was going to say fuck. And when it happened, I was like, oh my God, that was, that was it, it's brilliant in its execution of nonchalance. That's all I'm going to say. And now I feel like I validated the people making a big deal out of it by maybe talking about it for a minute straight. But I, it, it made me laugh a lot. And I wasn't laughing a lot because this movie is sort of a down, like there are very funny moments, but it has a dour tone, which is the right tone. And when the comedy does happen, it's like, oh yeah, these guys are the a-holes. You know, these guys do have their own little slice of life in the MCU where their comedy feels organic. As opposed to Falcon and Winter Soldier standing on a burning building that falls down and they're like, the building just fell. Yeah, it did. And I like the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I'm not throwing shade at them or Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan. I'm just throwing shade at writing. I guess it goes back to that gag in Thor: Love and Thunder, where the temple falls behind Thor, and he's like, "Oh, the temple will stand for a thousand years. Oh, it's falling, isn't it? Oh, we could probably still save some of it. Oh, no, it's all the way down. Oh, well, uh, so sorry. It's just, it's not funny. It's not fucking funny. I know we were gonna say we were going to talk about Gamora and Star Lord. Uh, I know it's been sort of short on Gamora, her arc, you know." is a little more straightforward. Well, let's finish Star-Lord, then we'll talk about Gamora, because I do have a few more things to say about Gamora. Should Star-Lord have died at the end? I mean, sure, his face was... I, I just... I love the idea of Star-Lord dying, trying to save the last member of his family. The music. It, it's its such a part of what he who he is, and what he always has been, and what made him who he is, and what drove him. I don't know, I kind of think it would have been okay to do it. It really would have been okay to do it. But it doesn't happen and that's fine. I do enjoy the thread of, you know, Peter, maybe you just need to stop jumping from lily pad to lily pad and just fucking learn how to swim. Stop trying to find yourself by who's surrounded by you and just find who you actually are. And I love that they finally brought back the grandpa who was left on earth. I mean, I think, it's pretty obvious. I think we all think that's a good callback. If you don't think it's a good callback, we should, I mean, really take a moment and think, why not? I like Star-Lord ending up back on Earth being just a plebeian who's mowing the grass for Grandpa. Like, it's cute. It's fun. You know, find out who the who you are as Peter Quill. Not Peter Quill, the son of Ego or the Guardian of the Galaxy. The post credit scene is humorous because it's a slice of life. Do we need the legendary Star-Lord to return? I think I'm good. And that's not a shade at the actor or anything like that. I just, I think I'm good. I think the story is where it needs to be. I don't need Star-Lord by himself. The only, like, I swear, I don't want a Star-Lord movie. If Star-Lord ends up showing up in one of the Avengers films that's coming out someday, somehow, uh, you know, it's like, well, hey, I'm on Earth anyway, and there's some shit going on. I I, I'll, I volunteer to help. Like, I can understand that. You know, I've been living on Earth with Gramps for four years. Gramps has died, you know, because he's old. I'm sure it'll happen. And that's, you know, not to be a downer. It's going to happen to everybody. Uh, you know, uh, You know, he taught me who I am as Peter Quill. He helped me understand who the human side of me is as an adult. And uh, I'm ready to get back into it because I think my place is at the side of doing what's right. And I would totally buy into it and it would feel organic. Now, this is where he pivots to Gamora. It's, is it ballsy? that she doesn't end up with Star-Lord maybe but it's also absolutely the right call that she doesn't end up with Star-Lord this is not the same Gamora it would be fucking creepy and too like storybooky and it just wouldn't feel right it is right that she comes throughout the course of the film to understand how you know I get it I get how I could have maybe found this family and maybe even had a thing for Quill I mean look most people will tell you, they know you know if you're physically attracted to someone like almost instantly, regardless of if you end up being their buddy, if you're their friend, if you just walk past them in the street and you never see them again for the rest of your fucking life, or if you end up you know in a relationship with them. Like, and I'm not saying that's wrong. It's wrong if you're like, hey, pretty lady, why don't you come sit on my face? Like, yeah, that's wrong. But what I'm saying is, is there's sort of a, I mean, it's a very human thing it's a very human thing. So I, you know, Gamora being like, "Oh, I could see this happening maybe like under different circumstances." I get it. It's 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 real. It feels real, dare I say, in a space opera written by James Gunn. And that is that's just one of the things that makes the movie good. You know, it doesn't just give you what you think should happen. It's appreciated. It's really appreciated in this day and age of simple Marvel filmmaking and storytelling. You know, it kind of makes them sort of, like, cosmically entwined in some way, shape, or form. You know, it's a cosmic love story. And love exists in many different forms. And she's got her own family. You know, she's a Ravager. We see that in the ending montage. Like, when she gets back to the Ravager, she finally smiles. Like, she's sort of miserable with the Guardians, and then she comes to be a part of the team. But she's really at home they helped her adjust to her new life in this new year in this new world without Thanos like they're the ones that acted as Gamora volume 2's family and she's home she's happy she smiles you know she learns to understand what it is that Groot is saying that's pretty big that's the big revelation her journey was to realize that there might be a little bit of that Gamora that everybody thinks she is inside of her but I'm still who I am and and I think I think it's well done so kudos for Star Lord and Gamora the Great. They were written, James Gunn was sort of written into a very difficult situation trying to book himself to WrestleMania and he came out on top. That's quite an accomplishment given the creative uh the way things work in in creative over at Marvel. Well done, James. Kudos. And kudos to Karen Gillan cuz next I want to talk about the Nebula, the Nefarious. I don't think that's her actual title, but Karen Gillan's great as always. You know, She's really a surprise character and almost, dare I say, like the uh, an unsung hero of the MCU. Um, you know, I know that Karen Gillan's not like moving the box office needle like other people do. And I'm not, I mean, I, I don't have any evidence actually to back up what I'm just saying. I'm just going by sort of my gut. But I will say that she's always a welcome addition. You know, she's really taken the Nebula character on a journey. Not to sound cliche or really over-artsy about it, although over-artsy is a little too late for that with this entire thing, but, you know, she has great interactions with every character that she's ever interacted with in the MCU. There's something interesting there, because the Nebula character is an interesting one to get to play with. It's, you know, she's a tweener, and that makes for fun. It usually always does. It's interesting to me... this is so nerdy. Was she an Avenger for five years? I mean, she's in and out of the Avengers compound, coming and going in Endgame. Like, I don't I don't know what she was up to in the five-year-later era. Like, she shows up in Endgame when it's time for the Time Eyes, and she's like, hey, Rody like, or watch out. Fucking Ant-Man's here. He's a little, little pussy, so don't crush him when you land. Like, she's pretty comfortable coming and going. She's got some sort of clearance with the Avengers, and that's not really relevant. But I don't know. It makes me feel like when we catch up with her in Volume 3, should she have been a little less hard? I'm glad she's not because she's still the Nebula we know and love. It's just something I was thinking about. I like that the way Nebula's written here in Volume 3, she's very much aware that her sister is dead. She doesn't have the same... She seems to be somewhat okay with the fact that Gamora... Like, knowing that Gamora gets to keep going. But she knows her Gamora... She's the opposite of Quill. Like, she knows her Gamora is gone. And she does... I'm sure it pains her, but she's not hung up on it like Quill is. And I think that's the right choice. And Nebula is sort of the... The voice I don't want to say she's the voice of reason but she's very much a presence here that sort of keeps the guardians on track because she doesn't fuck around so she's very much like get to the point and and that's very much needed here and her big you know the big revelation about nebula is that you know she decides to stay behind on nowhere at the end and 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 you know keep take care of the high evolutionaries kids the children of the sun from Jonathan Hickman's Avengers. <laughs> that's deep. That's really deep nerd shit. But that's okay. I like that she you know, she's she realizes her new like sort of rationalization and reasoning to exist in the galaxy. She's essentially and I don't know if you caught this, and maybe I'm looking too much into it, she is now Thanos. Pause. Understand what I'm saying. Thanos would often take orphans from around the galaxy, you know, kids that he just orphaned, and make them the children of Thanos. The Ebony Maw, the fucking, uh, you know, Call Obsidian, uh, the, you know, all the members of the Black Order, Proxima Midnight, Gamora, Nebula. You know, he does this. He collects children and manipulates them to do his means. Now, I'm not saying Nebula's going to manipulate these kids, but she is. she gets to do... The same thing that Thanos did. However, she's going to do it altruistically, and I think that's very important. I think it's kind of cool. It sort of continues the James Gunn family thing, you know, we become our parents in some way, shape, or form, but she's also learned from her journey that she's going to be the exact opposite of Thanos. It's, it's nice as george lucas would say you know it's uh, it's like poetry It rhymes you see in episode 1 of guardians of the galaxy nebula as well she's she's a bit of a loose cannon and you know maybe she should paw up she's she's she likes to pod race and you know she's always getting into conflicts with shabalba and you know it's just one of those things that happens did you see that uh, shabalba was there with the high evolutionary hello shabalba shabalba's my favorite character i've ever created i love you shabalba but it does rhyme, and I like that quite a bit. Speaking of rhyming, Dave Bautista Drax Destroyer. I love Drax. Well, I love Dave. I love Dave so goddamn much. I love that Drax ultimately becomes the dad of the galaxy. You know, he lost his daughter. He lost his wife. He talks about it incessantly, which is fine. But, you know, there's sort of... I don't know if he if there's like a will-they-won't-they they with Mantis that we'll talk about in just a moment. We'll talk about Mantis a little bit more. Um, but Dave... The, Drax is pretty much Drax here. He's, he, he's the same. And I understand that Dave doesn't want to do Drax anymore, and I get it, because the character doesn't really change much. The character is always sort of the same beats. However, that being said, Dave nails it every fucking time, so... You know take pride in that. I get as a creative type wanting to do something different and I respect that decision I really do. And I get where he's coming from after seeing this volume 3 even all the more because even under the penmanship of James Gunn he's still kind of the same. That being said the character of Drax does have a beautiful arc that closes with him sort of revealing that his role is dad. Like that's who he's destined to be. You know, I'm benefiting from just having watched Volume 1 and Volume 2, but he tells Quill that, you know, in Volume 2 when Gamora the First and Star-Lord are having a will-they-won't-they-Sam and Diane thing, he's like, you know, you're, you're too lame for Gamora. Gamora's just not a dancer. You're a dancer. My wife wasn't a dancer. We were at the big, you know, war party, and every single fucking person was dancing except Chimera or whatever his wife's name is. And that's how I knew that she was the one for me. But then, here at the very end, again during the, the the kind of fun you know montage that we'll talk about towards the end of this podcast, what does Drax do? He dances for the kids! He, he rejects his native condition to help the kids, to entertain the kids, to make them feel at ease, to be a part of the party with the kids, to do what dads do. He leaves his comfort zone. It's subtle, it's silly, but it's kind of perfect. You know, again, I don't want to wax too poetic on this thing here. I know we're not talking about like Oscar Academy Award winning stuff, but, you know, given the shit that we've had to deal with as Marvel fans, which is, again, is a thing I don't like saying because it makes me feel like an even bigger nerd, but it's just nice to see something that's comedic be so organic and rewarding from a character perspective is all. Uh, but, you know, I think we're done with Drax, and, and, and Dave's done, and, and we'll miss you. I appreciate what you did, though. And kudos to Dave Bautista, man. Continues to prove himself as perhaps the best sports entertainment actor of all time. Now, we talked briefly about a relationship with Mantis. Mantis was another great surprise. You know, Drax and Mantis have, have sort of also had like a will-they-won't-they, they, but it's not it it is and it isn't like I was kind of I, I kind of interpreted it as such like that maybe it's because I'm a heterosexual male that identifies with Drag's the Destroyer from that perspective, um, but you know they do the gags about you're ugly well you're stupid you know she doesn't really call him stupid she doesn't this one she admits she thinks he's stupid. But why would she make him forget that she thinks he's stupid if she didn't care about it? Maybe it's not like a love thing, but a brother-sister thing. And that's okay, too. But Mantis was another great surprise, you know, in the Christmas special or the holiday special. In the holiday special, you know, it was firmly established that, you know, she is Star-Lord's sister in a way. You know, she's Ego's, you know, progeny. Like, I get it. Like, it totally makes sense. Um, And they do play into that. But she's sort of on her quest for her to determine why she even exists. And I like that at the end she goes her own way. She has some pretty fun moments, some good comedic moments. I love that she gets the pet monsters. I love that when they're cornered, like when the third act is getting a little too third acting, it's like, Jesus, now they got to fight these monsters. She just does her mantis shit. And now she's mama to some monsters. She's the mother of dragons. (laughs) I don't know. I like it. I think it's fun. It's cool. It's cute. And it makes sense that she would go off on her own. I I am Groot. Groot, how should I say this, I'm glad that Groot's back to his normal, man, Groot was getting annoying, like the baby teenage Groot shit, especially when in volume one, Groot is such a, a fun character, and like interesting, and sympathetic, and, and multi-layered, dare I say, even though all he says is I am Groot, but I man, I was getting tired of Groot that wasn't adult, uh, I'll just simply point out the moments of awesome Grootness here, I love that him and Star-Lord did a team up. Because it was very Han Solo Chewbacca. Very Han Solo Chewbacca. And I appreciate that quite a bit. I love that Groot had all the guns hidden in his body. And he had his like Matrix gun moment. Uh, it was fun that he grew wings. It was fun when they told him to go kaiju form. And he did. And he looked like a badass in the post credit scene. Where he's like even older than he was in Volume 1 as a Groot. And he's like a giant Groot. I thought it was fun. What else can you do with Groot? And a lot of people, I've read a lot of divisive takes on Groot saying, I love you guys. And if you didn't get that he actually just said, I am Groot, but we finally heard him for the first time, I don't know what you're doing watching movies. Find a new hobby. Because it was clear that that was the intent. Kraglin and Cosmo. I Again, I don't want to, getting kind of long here. I don't want to shortchange these guys because I want to. And yes, I'm, I'm waiting to get to Rocket. Um, you know they both, Craglin and Cosmo, both had moments to shine. I, w- I, I I assumed Yondu would find a way to be in this thing because Gunn always works with Michael Rooker, and that's a good thing. Um, I was surprised that Craglin got the got the the Force Ghost Yondu to push him in the right direction, but that's fine. I thought for sure Quill would have a conversation with Force Ghost Yondu in his head, like maybe if he gets knocked unconscious, and he's like, "Boy, why don't you wake up? Cause I'm Yondu, I'm Mary Poppins, y'all." I thought for sure that, you know, Quill would get that. But, you know, the Force Ghost of Yondu appears to Kraglin and teaches him how to whistle. No, I know it's deeper than that, and that's fine. Cosmo, there's no time for Cosmo. She's funny. Like, it's fine. I appreciated it. Um, I'm anxious to watch it with the closed caption so I can catch all the things that she says, like, as an aside, because some of the stuff was difficult to pick up in the audio tracks. Uh, just for me, I'm not saying it was for you. Um, but she gets the moment to shine hold you know it is what you saw the movie. you know what she does. She holds the ships together so everybody can get off and, and what have you. It's funny. you know she interacts with Howard the Duck. It, it's fine. It's really fine. Um, let's talk about Adam Warlock and the Sovereign. Kraglin and Cosmo you know had moments and stuff to do, but they were close to being like too much. Adam Warlock and the Sovereign here are a bit one spice too many. All right, I've seen, you know, I've seen praise for Will Poulter's performances. Adam Warlock, what performance? And I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean. I mean, there's really nothing here. I don't know much about Adam Warlock in the comics, except that he can, like, regenerate himself in his cocoon and sort of reemerge as, like, a new version of Adam Warlock, which is fine because it's a built-in retcon. Who doesn't want to build a comic book character with a built-in retcon anytime you need it? To fine with me. So I don't know if Warlock is comics accurate. I will say this. This was James Gunn's audition reel for helming Superman because Adam Warlock here is basically Golden Superman, and I will say this. The the camera was moved interestingly with Adam Warlock. Uh, I feel like Adam Warlock was filmed interestingly. His power set was displayed interestingly, so it made me feel a little bit more okay with Gun doing Superman. Um, but I, I got nothing for you, Adam. I'm sorry, and I uh, I know his mom, the Princess Aisha, or the Queen Aisha, or whatever her title is, Empress Aisha. I liked Elizabeth. Is it Elizabeth or Becky here? Like I. You know, I know Elizabeth DeBecki from Two Rules, if that's her name. And I apologize if I'm mispronouncing it. I know her as Aisha of the Sovereign from Guardians Volume 2. And I know her as the female lead in Tenet. I can't remember the character's name. I've only seen Tenet a few times. And I think of her as having the stuffiest of shirts in the history of stuffed shirts. Like I do. Because in Tenet, everybody's shirt is stuffed to the max. It's Tenet might be the stuffiest shirt film I've ever seen in my life which is fine. It's Nolan. What do you expect? But seeing her like with her hair disheveled and like yelling and being like a little crazy, I appreciated that. I'm sure she has range and I'm sure she has roles that aren't stuff sure. But to me, it was sort of like, Oh, she's kind of fun. I I find her goofy and somewhat entertaining, but I got nothing for Adam Warlock. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's fine. Um, the high evolutionary top tier Marvel villains. Can we get more Marvel villains like this, please? a unique blend of Dr. Frankenstein with a God complex. Absolutely perfect. And I love that the High Evolutionary's crazy schemes actually lined up with him as a character. You know, sometimes, like like Thanos, take a look at Thanos, and it's like he's trying to gather the Infinity Stones, and his crazy scheme is to balance the universe, and they made it make sense. Do not get me wrong. Like, I just sort of like the simplicity here. He's the High Evolutionary. His evil scheme is simple. He wants to he wants to evolve life to be perfected this there's Brad synergy pal uh the performance is great his unhinged moments his hatred for rocket you know because he doesn't understand that a feeble creature he created you know has evolved to understand something that even he doesn't understand like it's perfect it's perfect frankenstein's monster shit i really like it quite a bit the performance is great um i love that fucking quill Brought attention to the fact that he does look like an unmasked RoboCop, because because I'm thinking this the whole time, and I'm like, it's just a it's just a design choice, you know, like it's just it's just the way it is. But Star Lord yelling at him like you RoboCop looking piece of shit, like I loved it. I did like when Star Lord, you know, and a High Evolutionary got the play off of one another. I think there was it was one scene, but it was done very well. There might be a few scenes here and there, but I liked it. I thought the High Evolutionary really worked. He I don't want to say he was... Sh- I don't think he was shortchanged at all. I don't know what his screen time adds up to. But I certainly felt the dickness of the High Evolutionary. Maybe you could say it's a shortcut because he's he's being cruel to animals. And it's sort of like an, he's an easy hate. But I felt... I felt that he had layers. He's like an onion. I felt the High Evolutionary had layers. And... Uh, I fucking love when he got his skin ripped off, not only when Rocket did it in the flashback, but when it actually, we got to see the results. P- creepy, gross PG-13 Marvel. I'm, I'm here for it, man. Like, yes. Give me more of that. Give me more of fucking complex shit happening that's not surface level, and then show me underneath why it is complex. Rocket Raccoon. MVP, unbelievable. This is Rocket's story. He starts out a creep. No, he's not a creep, but I love how every Guardians of the Galaxy movie starts with this, like, well, you know, after the Marvel intro in the first one, you got, Come and get your love! And then you got Mr. Blue Sky in the second one. You got, you know, Groot's dance. Like, they just, they're a little more happy. I love that this one tells you right away. This is a kick. This movie is going to be a kick in the nuts. Okay. It is going to be complex. Uh, it is going to hurt a little bit more. I'm almost surprised Rocket was listening to, I hurt myself today, my Swedish friend, and you can hear it all, my Swedish friend. Is this my Swedish friend or my Swedish friend? If it's Swedish, what <laughs> what what are we done ta- who who are we talking to? Um but yeah, I mean I I will say this. When Rocket is attacked by Adam Warlock in the opening scene, the the kickoff to the movie is a little confusing. Like Rocket like the med packs and Rocket has like the fail say like slow down just a little bit. I understood it. It's not complex layered shit talking about how Rocket's biomechanics work, like that he has a, a fail-safe system because he's a product and the company would, you know, rather have the product just die as opposed to it be, you know, you can fix it. But slow it down just a little bit. There's a lot happening in the first 15 minutes of this movie. Um, speaking of a lot happening, the flashbacks might be the best part. It's easy to, like Like I said, we talked about how there's the the the... Rocket and his gang aren't Disney characters, but there's anthropomorphic talking animals, so they feel very innocent. And they are innocent. You know, the scene where Rocket works with the High Evolutionary and sees the Rocket and then they they choose their names. You know. You know, I, it's funny. I saw I saw some person on Twitter who was like, "Thank you James Gunn for giving us a a Marvel movie that isn't woke." Oh, I hate wokeness and I don't understand when people say that something's woke. Because when you really break down wokeness, it just seems to be usually common sense and not being a dick. But that's neither here nor there. But I think the person missed the scene where the animals get to choose their name and choose their identity. But that's fine. The person clearly doesn't have their head on right anyway. Because they're complaining about wokeness. But I found beauty in the scene. I found beauty in the scene. And we and hey, the flashbacks, we learned so much about origin, the origin of Rocket, but including why he's a kleptomaniac. Because if you steal enough shit, you might find your way out of a situation that's quite sticky that you don't want to be in. You never know when you're going to need that guy's leg or when you're going to need the Kremulax batteries. You know, Rocket takes things because he had to steal things to build the card key to get out of the high evolutionaries, you know, thing. So that's why Rocket steals. It's just, it's it's smart shit. It's, it's designed by a person that, you know, clearly wrote all three films. My God. God, the scene where the high evolutionary kills his pals. We talked about, well, Lila, you know, Teef's, you know, the, their, their deaths are tragic and sad, but I mentioned Floor earlier. I, I bawled like a little, 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 little uh, injured person with a skinned knee here, all right? And I, I think, you know, that's, that's fine. I think a lot of people probably did. I mean, it's a pretty easy scene to get emotional about, but what really got me was Floor. You know, when I first, when I graduated college, I moved in with my lady friend and what have you. We wanted to get a pet, and she suggested a rabbit, and I was like, a rabbit? Never in my life have I considered having a pet rabbit. Well, we got a rabbit, and not only was a pet rabbit, you know, I'd been led to believe that having a pet rabbit like would be like a weird experience. Like, you get a cat, cat could be a dick, cat could love you a lot, you know, come sit on your lap. A dog, I don't really need to say much, I think we all know how dogs can be in terms of companionship. And I was like, companionship from a rabbit? I don't know. And I'll tell you, folks, we must have gotten lucky and picked the nicest rabbit in the history of rabbits. Because not only did the rabbit love us, she would come out to play with us. She would sit with us. She wasn't afraid of us. She would jump for us. She would do tricks with us. Not tricks like, do a trick, rabbit! Like, tricks! You know, we she would jump with us. And she would, you know, jump up and grab banana to eat and everything like that. Um, you know, people would ask me, like, don't you worry about the rabbit, like, not being in a caged environment, I'm like, well, she has her pin that she, you know, kind of, like, hangs out in, and she sleeps in, and what have you, but, you know, when we can, she's out and about with us, we block stuff off, we rabbit-proof things, you know, I don't want to sound like a bad rabbit owner, and she lived for years, like, 12, I don't know, but, Anywho, I, I, you know famously, I, I once watched like a three hour episode of Raw with her in my lap the entire time. Like that's how chill she was. But one night, you could tell she was sick. Her breathing was labored and what have you, and I, 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 I boxed her up, like, I put her in you know like a, a safe space, and I, I, I took off driving to a 24-hour animal hospital. and it must have been her time to go. Because as I was driving, the poor thing, I'm sure she was stressed. She had, okay, long story short, she had a heart attack in the front seat as I was driving. And I am not saying, I'm going to give you a little detail here. I'm not saying it to, oh, woe is me. Like, it's just that rabbits are skittish. They get nervous. And her heart attack was... She sort of exploded with like a nervous rage, and she got really stiff, and and I'm not... So when Floor the rabbit was having a panic attack and repeating the same thing over and over again, like, rocket, sky, rocket, sky, or whatever it is she's saying, I can tell you that is how rabbits in duress act, and this rabbit can talk, and it made complete sense that like a small child, she was saying the same thing over and over again and acting on our base instincts and i could not handle floor the rabbit having a panic attack it's good good shit though like it's the right like it's a it's good like it's done right like it's done in the ways that i know that's not that you know that's a strange thing you just shared with us johnny c sure i i totally But that scene plays in a lot of ways, and that's a big part of it for me. And I'm sure you found your own reason it worked for you. The only thing I'll say about Rocket, is there a disconnect between... Because we spend all of our time with Rocket in the past, which is totally fine. But when Rocket kind of wakes up, it's kind of sad because we as the viewer have been on this insane emotional journey with Rocket that the rest of the Guardians of the Galaxy didn't get to go on with him. I mean, they see, they learn a little bit through Nebula, like connecting to the computer and shit, but the rocket in the present, we're with him on his journey, but the rest of the guard, is there like a disconnect between past r- rocket and present rocket? Maybe, but the journey works and he finally learns he's a raccoon from North America and he proclaims himself rocket raccoon. Awesome. Good shit. And at the end of the day, after the, you know, after the montage that we're, we'll talk about, it, I promise. Uh, he becomes the leader of the Guardians of the Galaxy in the post credit scene, and it works, and it makes sense, and he still, he still carries the weight of the Guardians of the Galaxy at his core because they kind of made him who he is in the present, and, and I think it works, and kudos to Bradley Cooper and the young actor that played Rocket's voice. Uh, they did a hella good job, and just well done making this the journey of Rocket Raccoon that we didn't know we needed. Um, I keep threatening to talk about the montage. I just want to wrap up with two standout moments and then we're out of here with the final verdict and you can go about your business. Look, I know the dog days song from Florence and the machine is a little like we've heard it a lot, man. It really works in this ending montage because it gives us the ending montage works so well because it gives us the catharsis and the, the ending to everybody. And it, it, it stands out. It's up there with Stark's Funeral. I think Stark, you know, it, they're different emotional beats, but it's very earned. So I'm going to allow the the pop song mo- happy montage at the end because it works. I, I get, I'm assuming it works every time you watch it and maybe even gets better if you catch little things. But the dog days are over. And yeah, I'm going to play the song at the end of the episode. Deal with it. It just, it, it, it's, it works, man. Gun has a good way... Like, the music can be overindulgent. I don't want my super fan movie to have music like this, okay? But it works here. It's a good wrap-up. And finally, how about that hallway fight? Jesus Christ! You know, it starts doing a scene like that. Doing a one Like, you risk sort of being indulgent and being like, look at this cool thing we're going to do. Yeah, look, we're cool. Look at it. You know, the oneer is the big thing to do these days. And it can really seem overindulgent or like a try, like a try-hard. This one worked for me, man. It it went on longer than I thought it would. And I was like, we're still going. We're still going. We're still going. In the middle, I was like, okay, this is a bit much. This is a bit, look how cool I am. But it kept working. I don't know how to explain it. It kept working. And it was just a... It was a visceral display of the Guardians united emotionally. And it was displayed through their action. And matching emotionality to action in a comic book film. Kind of what we're here for. And kind of the most important thing. And i am absolutely here for it. So, as we always do on Junkman. As the dog days begin to play... Is this movie junk? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, it, Junk Man's the movie show. That's why we did it. But it, the movie's not junk. It's not even close. It's, look, I've said it before during this show. I'm repeating myself, which is why when when I know that we're done. It's not, Osc- like, it's not, it's not like Oscar worthy. It's not like the end all be all of cinema. But man, it sure is nice to just get back to some fun with our comic book friends over in the Marvel world. And uh, just goes to show that it's time to stop just picking directors out of a hat that you could order around and fucking find some folks that are invested from a writing perspective. Like, get some fucking flair. Get some creative people in here. And I'm not saying that, like, Peyton Reed and, you know, other people that direct Marvel films are just paint-by-numbers, but Chloe Zhao's Eternals didn't work out too well. I'm just saying, like, let these people do what they are what they do best. And I think we'll start getting along a little bit better as we progress to phase five. Speaking of getting along, you can always get along with Johnny he- C here on the new TNN Podcast. Hey, check out the latest edition of, uh, well, the only edition of Splash Woman, a, a sort of one-off show that we did here on the new TNN, where myself and my buddy, the Balkster, Balk Hogan, review episode one of Brook Knows Best. Yeah, it's another stupid show where I do a lot of voices, but... Uh, It sort of turned into a legal drama with Johnny C. deposing a bulk Hogan about his actions towards Brooke Hogan. And I think it was kind of a lot of fun. But that being said, make sure you review, leave a like, share it with your friends, whatever it is that you folks do. I appreciate it. I'm Johnny C. And a winner is you.